Yes, we're sailing from Kingston, Jamaica Touching down throughout the Caribbean and rest of the world Get on board children, it's fun time Oh well Right now we're ready, you better hold on steady This boat is leaving from Kingston, Jamaica Massive and crew pack your bags cause we're ready Children get on board and hold on steady Come on, big ship sailing on the Yes, hold on steady, big ship sailing on the ocean. KPOO, San Francisco, every week we are right here in your ear with Prison Focus. Prison Focus is here to analyze, to discuss, to debate, and hopefully to break down America's love affair with its prison systems. Whether it is about incarcerating people, whether it is about, uh, you know, uh, giving the, or, or, you know, sentencing people um, to the death, uh, you know, to the death. So ending, uh, you know, people's life in a very barbaric way without even considering the, considering the, a right to life, you know, the, the fundamental right that people have to live as human beings so that no other human being have the right, whether you are a state prosecutor, whether you are a judge, whether you are whatever kind of person where you do not have the right to uh, sentence people to death. So this week uh, we had... Gavin Newsom coming out with some new uh, kind of perspective, saying that on my watch, I will not allow um, the death penalty to take place. Those brethren on death row, big up yourself out there, everyone, every single one of you, uh, including my Adrian Reynaldo. Blessed love to you, my Adrian. It's nice to talk to you. So, yes, uh, the instant Quentin, we obviously have uh, this place where um, people are waiting to be executed. And I'm talking about those brethren. I never, I never forget them. You know, they're always in our mind. And this is a way of saying that uh, the executions that is happening here is immoral. It's discriminatory. It's also ineffective. It does not hold people from committing crimes, violent crimes. It is also unequally applied, meaning that you have the, the, the minorities in the country uh, appearing on death row, six in every ten uh, people. Six in every ten people being kept in the state of California is people of color. The other uh, half or the ten of them together is obviously people who cannot afford legal representation. People of the poorer class. Those are the kind of things that Gavin Newsom are looking at. We are looking at things in a completely different way, although we are saying that some of the new sum ideas is good ideas. We are also considering that we have 737 people on death row. And some of those people have been there for 40 years. 
You know, most of the people that on on death row uh, over these years have died because of illnesses rather than execution. Execution is a very, very expensive process. Besides the fact that it's expensive, it's also a very complicated issue because you can have, you can be executed in different ways, like electrocuted, hanging, uh, even firing squad. There is also the, the, the way that people use in uh, the state of California, the lethal injection. Now, that has become a kind of, I don't know, uh, you cannot really say joke, yeah, but it has become a kind of mockery in terms of acquiring those drugs here in the state of California. Remember, during the time of Schwarzenegger, he completely overhauled the whole um, uh, death chamber so that it can be like a movie place where people can come together and just watch the the horrific ending of another person, barbaric way of, 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 of dealing with people. You have people, even some people in the news say, oh, I watched that. I didn't have an inkling of, of, of nerve or any, you know, hard feeling for those people. So those are the kind of things that we are looking at. And when we are talking about these drugs that is used uh, in the execution process, the lethal injection drugs, those were the drugs that we reported here how the officers of California were driving throughout the night to the state of, Cal of, the state of Arizona to get those drugs. Like almost in a clandestine way, in a very secretive manner, going out there like, like gangsters, you know, uh, looking for drugs. Being so addicted to, to that uh, level of, 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 of dragging people, executing people, killing people with those drugs. Remember also, there was this case of uh, U.S. officials. I think it's from the state of California, but U.S. officials uh, going overseas to London, to Europe, and buying some of these drugs over there on the street, so to speak. Because those... Uh, places where they were supposed to buy these drugs from doesn't have addresses. It's like buying it from the guy on the corner, you know, buying like, like going, we don't even buy marijuana in that way anymore. And the time when they were dealing with those drugs, they were, you know, uh, marijuana was already uh, a, 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 a kind of, uh, substance where you could only get a small fine. But these kind of drugs, let me tell you again. Remember the one drug that they give people is kind of uh, a sedative. The other drug that they give people is uh, pancoronium bromide. And this one is to paralyze the inmate. And then they give you the potassium chloride. And that is to stop your heart. So in many cases, these drugs also doesn't work the way and it leads to unhuman and cruel punishment or whatever you can call it, but just a very, very uneasy, uncomfortable way for a human being to treat another human being. So yes, that is uh, something that we feel that we kind of need to celebrate, that we need to 
to to to say oh that's a wonderful move that's almost like a change of heart that's almost like a change of mind that's almost like something that can affect the whole state of california but yet we have to take it one step further now we have to look and see that those prosecutors that is so in love with uh, looking and searching for the death penalty those prosecutors need to begin to understand and change their mindset so that the, so that w- we have like a whole you know the whole system fall in line with what we want to achieve right yeah the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that we also want to be on the alert for those prosecutors that come out with this sentence life without parole we need to look at that as well and say that oh you know what we understand we understand how the whole system work and we want to be more progressive in terms of addressing those offenses against our communities or against individuals kpoo san francisco we will come back with some very very interesting uh information on this program remember we're still dealing with the book uh that we're talking about we're still dealing with those essays as we're talking about and specifically today we want to bring on a very very interesting uh woman as well uh like last week and the week before we will also have sister nube coming on and talk to us some more about present focus Yes, I'm sure we can all see clearly now since the rain is gone a little bit and we we warming up, you know, a couple more days before this winter is officially over. But whether it is winter, whether it is summer incarceration continue. And on the line we have uh, a sis Nube that's going to talk to us a little bit more 
out um, California Prison Focus and then also our, n- our next approach in terms of the book and the um, information that she is giving us right now in the form of an essay. Over to you, Sus Nube. Thank you. Good, Good morning, morning to you. Brother Leonard. Good morning to you as well. Okay, go ahead, Sus yeah. Nube. Yeah, and good morning to all of our listeners out there, um, caged and uncaged. Um, Our energies are out here in this beautiful, sunshiny weather. It's very nice. Yes, we can see clearly now. The rain is gone. Um, I do want to remind people that um, uh, slavery has not been abolished. Well, first, let me say this. I am from California Prison Focus, and I want to invite any of you that can to please go to our website, prisons.org, and check out our wonderful newspaper. Um, I'm, I'm trying to work on writing a blog and would just love to, you know, get some feedback from all of you out there. Um, and any of you writers, we are going to be doing a special edition uh, prison focused newsletter um, on solidarity. So, um, and the deadline to bring in your contributions is March 20th. Go to our website, prisons.org, and you will find our address there. Um, and again, um, slavery has not been abolished because the, there is an exception clause to the 13th Amendment that says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. One thing that I want to make sure that I don't think I've made very clear before. While the state calls those people that have been convicted of a crime and um, enduring the prison, prison experience, they may call you slaves, but we do not. We, are, we know that you are human beings and, and you are mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and that you are our, that you are our community members. And... I really want to put out a big shout-out to those that are maintaining their humanity and also recognizing the humanity in others. And with that said, oh, and, and stay with us at the end of the show because we are going to be reading the second um, segment of um, the essay by Michael Zaharibu Doro, known as Zah. He sends his greetings, and we will get to that at the, after the interview with London Crowdy, who um, really exemplifies um, this spirit of humanity. At the age of 24, she was sentenced to 165 months inside the federal prison system for conspiracy to distribute heroin. She's been to six different county jails, five different federal prisons, went through the federal transfer system on five different occasions. London, are you here with us? I am, honey. Oh, hi. So good to have you. Welcome, welcome. Thank so, you for having London, me. So, um, London, why don't you share a little bit more about yourself beyond these, these statistics that I just mentioned, and then um, tell us about your first encounter when you were being represented in court regarding this 165-month sentencing and, and how that really informed your journey forward. Okay, um, so thank you for having me again. Um, uh, a little bit about me, I guess. I just got out October 2nd of 2018. Yes, thank you. Um, I currently work at 
legal services for prisoners with children, all of us are none. I'm an Elder Freeman 2019 Policy Fellow, um, which is truly just a blessing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm for the cause. My uh, this all leading up to my purpose to do my part and end in joining the fight to help end mass incarceration. And um, mm-hmm. and so your second question, I'm sorry, was... No, no, that's great. And you can just mm-hmm. continue on. But I, um, you know, considering that you were sentenced to 165 months, yeah, I was well, just wh- wondering... Why are you like, calling it 165 months? Because now my mind is like, hey, I've got to <laughs> figure out how many years that that is. And it's actually almost 13.75 years. Right, wow. and actually, I didn't know that for a long time because, um, yes, thirteen years, nine months, and uh, that's how they sentenced us. So I think just how you are is just most of the people who, in a federal sentence, when they throw those numbers at us, we're sitting there, standing there, trying to figure it out as well. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In, indeed, indeed, and so, and what what was going on in there? Like, what were they when the sentencing was taking place? What what were you hearing as i mean i i understand being you know stunned but what were you hearing what were you feeling what were you seeing even as 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 that was happening um maybe honestly i just felt i don't i think it was almost like an outer body experience um first off uh i had a public defender who um i couldn't believe the things like he wasn't when the uh, prosecutor was saying all these things about me, um, he didn't have anything to say. He just stood wow. next to me. So I basically started yelling out in the courtroom trying to um, tell the facts because I have this woman standing who's a prosecutor standing to the right of me who was wow. just um, demonizing me, you know, Um She sat there. First off, I signed a five-year plea, and all of a sudden, uh, my lawyer, right before I entered the courtroom, he says that he thinks that they're going to try to give me um, seven years. And then out of nowhere, this woman asks that I get 20 years. And what you're feeling like is just, um, I just couldn't believe it. It, um, it, I felt like I was in a twilight zone. I felt like... uh, I can't believe that say something, you know, you just think that, you know, you see, you heard this little chant, you know, justice will prevail and everything. And I just felt like, um, a form of rape. Like I couldn't do anything. Um, this woman was sitting there just painting me to this person that I didn't even know. Um, just picking every little thing that she could out of my case and to just, totally corrupt my character and not once did she say anything the person who I truly was she didn't say the you know how I grew up in the inner city and you know how I went to film school how I had to fight my way and how I just lost myself you know none of those things matter only thing that it was just to get her case her point across why she thought that I deserved 20 years in prison wow so she just basically assaulted your humanity right there in court so that she could win the case. Absolutely. And like. you look at this person and you're like, man, how can somebody do that? But it happens every day. It's been happening. And so how, once you recognize that that had happened, 
what how did that did that inform your your journey forward i mean because you were sentenced you had to go in you know what um how did that from your perspective too as a female how did that how did that um kind of inform your journey forward and um and then you know what was it like which is that you faced as as a female as as a woman incarcerated and so i know there must be unique challenges and how old were you i when i first got locked up i was 23 but i spent a year in county um jail so i was 24 at the time of my sentence sentencing and um the first thing when they um honestly i didn't even hear my sentence um because my judge he was so old and um he mumbled and i couldn't understand and i just remember hearing my mom scream out and i just turned back to my mom and i was just like i just told her i said it's okay mom god had to do it this way and i remember just as the court marshals were um us marshals were leading me out the courtroom something just happened like this automatic thing i felt like i just became desensitized um i just uh went into this whole survival mode um you just lose all feeling honestly and um i feel like you just at that when they're just putting you in that van and they're leading you away you just feel stripped you feel naked and so um i remember the my second stop cuz they took me to another county jail and left me there for a while and then they took me to the transfer center and i remember just sitting in this cell in the transfer center and i was just thinking about playing over and over in my head what this woman has said about me and just all the things that transpired that how i you know even got into this position like how did this happen and um i just remember just making that a conscious choice at the beginning like i was not going to be above like i was so determined to not um allow this woman that anything that she said about me anything that those black and white papers my psi my psr said about me i was not going i was going to make sure that i um that nothing in there was correct and so i just went on a journey of truly truly working on myself wow which wasn't an easy journey at is, all but it was necessary and this is be- and this this is before so this is when you are in the transfer center so you haven't even started your sentence inside the federal prison yet no yeah i nope i was at the um transfer center for about 2 weeks before i arrived in Alderson West Virginia federal prison mm-hmm. was my first stop Yeah we're talking here on KBO San Francisco Prison Focus we're talking to two very powerful women one of them is of course Nobi Brown from Prison Focus and the other one is London Crowdy London let me ask you about coming into the prison now um how many how many women that you knew at that point or when you came in were mothers Okay, so um I was if I had to guess a percentage, 98% of my conversations usually started like this, like how much time did you get? And I we would change times and they would say, "Oh, do you have kids?" Okay. and I would say, "No, do you have kids?" and 98% of them it seemed like would say, "Yes, wow. you're lucky." Wow. 
And so doing a research, um, 80% of people incarcerated have children. Wow. Wow. And Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. Wow. And the kids suffer the most. The kids, like, seeing these women trying to um, be a mother uh, from behind the walls was just like, um, I mean, it's just a, I've been through so many, you know, these women became my family members because I was so far from my family members, I never got visits. And so the women that I did time with became my family. Mm -hmm. And so I've just, you know, their pain was my pain and vice versa. And so I've been in behind the walls where women have lost their kids, where the day just starts off normal, and all of a sudden you hear someone scream out, and they just found out that their kid got murdered. And... When a person's kid gets murdered um, because it's a violent crime, they don't even get to they don't even get the opportunity to lay their kid to rest. Um, where the mothers, um, their kids get injured, and they there's nothing that they can do. They know that their kid is in a hospital. They know that this and they you you can't even make certain um, you can't make phone calls at certain times. A lot of women don't have money behind the walls, and so all they know is that they they don't know nothing. They don't know what is the um, what's going on with their child. I've been in there with friends who are trying to um, do all that they can but really have no resources, no help. To ch- um, Their kid is about to be lost into the system. Hmm. Or that the caretaker is very old and that's the only person that they have. You know, that might not be the best place for them, but what is their other option? And they're fighting with this every single day. Like, that was my reality every day. Like, this saturated. These women, their kids is the highlight of their, is, is every day. It doesn't just happen on here, here, there, and this, and the other. It happened, this was my life every single day for eight plus years. Wow. Go ahead, Nubi. And, you know, just, I, it, it's so powerful to, you know, one of the things that we don't, um, well, I'm so glad that you're here, uh, London, and, and willing to share your story because um, women be, that are incarcerated face unique challenges. And in the narrative of mass incarceration, um, we don't often get to hear about what women are are having to go through. Their challenges, like I said, are unique. And it's important that we... Um, and I know that you're doing this work, London, to make sure that their voices are getting out there in the in the dialogue and making sure, like what you talked, um, I think you had mentioned it in something called Level Up, that it's important yeah. that these voices um, and the unique challenges that women are facing are at the, also a part, uh, at the forefront of the dialogue when it comes to the changes that need to be made. Um, Absolutely, newbie. And I think us as women inside... We acknowledge, we know that it's primarily our black and brown men that are behind these walls, you know, and we're not taking that away. We, we acknowledge that. We're just adding, you know, asking to be added into the conversation equally, you know. Um, Absolutely. That's just, that's just the exchange that we, that's what all that we want is just to be, you know, in the last decade, um, the female population has grown tremendously. 
I believe it's like, I don't, don't call me on this, but I believe like over 700%. Yep. And no one's asking this question, like, why is this happening? What's going on? You're right. Right. Absolutely. And, and I, and I want to say, too, with that, since we do have you, um, <clears throat> I appreciate and, wow, that you, didn't, that you didn't actually, you were a kid, though, behind the bars. Because 20, 23 years old is, is young. You're still trying no. to get your life together. And so you have your own special challenges as well as a young woman having been, having been caged re- without having children. So uh, it's, it's important that we recognize that, that that narrative as well doesn't get lost in, um, in, this, in this dialogue as well. Yeah, uh, Nubi, before you go into the section of the new London that that was, you know, built through that process of intensity and hardship, I want to ask London about, because it seems that London is just this powerful woman that has become so brave and she was now dealing with these kind of things. I want to ask her whether there was, uh, you know, whether she had a boyfriend, whether there was somebody, you know, behind, because now you have seen so many instances of women going, uh, you know, being young woman and trying to show some love to the man and then in the end they get entrapped into a situation where they cannot really, you know, where they cannot really wiggle themselves out and then either because of the love, because of their commitment, because of their loyalty or, or some, you know, I just want to know from uh, my sister London here whether that was the case in her situation or whether she is aware that some of those things happen and that young women should be looking out for those kind of things. Absolutely, Brother. So, um, yes, so at a very young age, I got involved with a man um, who was, he sold drugs, and um, I was, I just loved that. I got enticed by that lifestyle, and um, basically that was the only thing that was the forefront of my mind, and he was, uh, and then before long, I just found myself in something that I couldn't get out of. You know, um, I was definitely before I met him, I was the not me girl. And, you know, oh, I would never let a man put his hands on me. I would never, like, you know, allow this to happen. And um, I um, am a survivor of domestic violence. I am a survivor of um, rape. And so... Um, just about as well, if I had to guess a number, uh, majority of the women, a number would be 98%, if I had to guess, uh, women that I've met, their crime is in some way, some form or fashion linked to a man. Okay. And, um, you know, in, in a street, you know, you, they, we call it hoodwink, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's real. Thank you for that sharing. Yeah, thank you for that, London. This is this is very, very powerful. Well, I would love to... You are out now, and you've been out for just over five months, and you're doing, you're doing amazing things, and I, I and I know that you really want to take this, all, all this forward, and so I would like to ask you about some of the things that you are doing um, um, that are, that you are feeling committed to. For instance, um, 
you're part of a coalition campaign to uh, free the vote, and I would love for you to share, you know, what that means to you, and yeah, and just some of the other things that you know you really that you're putting yourself forward for in terms of, um, you know, the women that you had to leave behind, and um, and just. Uh, your thoughts on, uh, you know, what you want to be doing with, uh, um, again, with mass incarceration. Okay, so um, the campaign, we're working on uh, legal services for prisoners with children and all of us are none. Uh, amazing organization. We, that's uh, primarily staffed, 70% staffed by formerly incarcerated. And one of our big bills that we're pushing is ACA 6, which is free to vote. So on this bill, it will allow um, parolees the right, it will give them the, um, the right to vote. And it's just so crazy because, um, you know, when you're on parole, like, all of us have to file taxes. Uh, we pay taxes and um, abide the law just like everyone else, but we can't vote. And it's just so, like, it's just the disfranchisement of it. It's just ridiculous. So, basically, ACA 6 will instore, um, give us the right to vote. And, basically, that's just giving us power because not allowing parolees to vote, it was a strategic thing. You know, um, um, a vote, people don't realize that I had to learn, gives us power. When you vote, when you don't vote, it gives the other side power. Whatever yeah. you're not voting for, you're, you still, you're still voting. You know, voting allows us to pick our judges, to pick our prosecutors, mm -hmm. to say, you know, who's going in there and who's coming out. You know, if we don't like something, it, it gives us the opportunity to hold someone accountable, right? Because a lot of people, when they're pushing out these campaigns, you know, they, they sell a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. And so when a person sells a story that sounds good and everything and you vote for that person and now you become active in your vote, you can say, hey, uh, remember when you said this, that, and the other? What's going on with that? Okay, because if right. you don't, I'll be right there at the next election and we're voting you out. This is how this goes. <laughs> and so that's another part of how this levels up. We have to, you know, when we know better, we can do better. And I was one of those people who didn't know that I just let it pass me by. I didn't get involved. I didn't want to stand in the long lines. It was just, it just seemed like it didn't affect me. But now, you know, unfortunately, you, sometimes people have to fall real hard to realize just as much as it does affect you. And so, um, ACS, ACA6, please support ACA6. ACA6. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Well, London, it's been so great talking with you. I, um, I would love you for you to give us your last words about what you want the public to know about the, the women you left behind, your, just your last words, and a way that people can get in contact with you. Okay. And what I would like for people to know that, um, that these prison walls are filled of women. The women, um, uh, statistics say that women don't get visits. They get way have less the visits than men. Um, they get lack of support. They don't have the funding. You know, everybody knows behind those walls that sometimes that commissary is necessary, you know, that we don't get that, you know, lack of mail. We need support. We need, you know, for even the men behind the walls, we need for you guys to lift the women up as well. Um, there's some beautiful, some of the best women that I've met, some of the most intelligent, you know, um, TV has a way of creating this narrative, and, you know, with the men as well, that there's just these hard, vicious, 
um, just corrupt people behind the walls and everything. And what I realized, even meeting some of the men during, you know, going through the transfer center and everything, it is just some amazing people, some lost people. You know, some of these stories that I've heard um, of the people behind the walls and everything is that uh, when you hear their stories and the things how they were like fending for themselves um, at such an age when they were just supposed to be enjoying life, when they were supposed to be protected, and then all these corrupt things happen to them, you know, you have to like, you, you know, you don't... You're like, of course you've done what you know, like got off into such and such. And so... Um, like my purpose in life now is to encourage the forgotten. There's so many di- different groups to the forgotten, but my forgotten is the ones that are rough around the edges who are misunderstood. They need love. And so that's the people that that's what I would love for people to know about men and women behind those walls. And I just want to lift up my brothers and my sisters behind those walls is that, you know, never become a victim of the system. You've got to fight. I know it's like every day it's like fighting to stay above water. You know, sometimes you just open your eyes in the morning and you feel this heaviness, you know. And I know that some people, you know, um, who just, you know, they're, my ex, they told him that, you know, when they finish with him, that his death certificate is going to say escape by death. And I don't know how to tell you to survive by that, but what I'm say- telling you is that me, London Crowley, and there's a whole, I mean, a whole slew of other people that together we are trying our best to come together to, um, to just that. It, just, it takes, it takes a so it's going to take a, a, a war to end this mass incarceration. This wasn't just done overnight. This was done over a period of time, and this was strategically done. So we need to be the strategic in dismantling it. And so anybody can reach me at London at prisonerswithchildren.org. Um, you can always go to lspc.org and um, reach out to us, brothers and sisters behind the wall. We would love for you to become members of All of Us or None and um, just join this movement even inside there. It's going to, like, again, this is a war. Thank you so much, London. This has been such a pleasure having you. You are amazing, and I'm sure that we will be having you back again. Thank you so much. Thank you much. guys so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Big up yourself, London. Okay. Next time we see you in the studio. I'm going to go to a quick music break, and then me and Sis Nubi will be back talking again about the book that is measuring the squares in which people are living. Yes, I got to get the reading. <laughs> As we, as we continue here, obviously the voting is taking place, uh, you know, and the big bad wolf is placed in a corner. He may use his veto rights, but who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Okay, over to you, Sis Nube. Thanks so much. Thanks, all. We are going to start reading the second segment of our essay by Michael Zahari Budoro, as I had promised last week. Here we are. Zah sends his greetings. And last week he left us saying, Hey, Ashbury represented to me what humanity was capable of being. We'd be uncuffed. 
I think there were two incidents that defined the direction that my life would take. When I was 16, there was a fire at my parents' house, and I thought that my mother had been trapped in the fire. It caused me to have a nervous breakdown. I was hospitalized for it. After I ran away from the hospital I'd been committed to, I was kidnapped by what eventually became a rival gang, sat on for about four days, and beaten up on pretty badly. I wasn't involved in any gang activity at the time. I had no interest in it. The guys who were responsible for taking me were under the impression that I was out of the Nickerson Garden housing projects, which was a rival neighborhood in Watts. I was not. At the time, the area I ran in was a park, 109th Street Park in Watts. The park was directly next to the Nickerson Garden projects, which is why they made the mistake they did. To protect me, my parents sent me to Detroit, where I had family, to heal and to be taken care of. I returned to California about 14 months later. I did make the Nickerson Garden Projects the area that I ran in, and I became a member of the gang that was eventually formed over there, the Bounty Hunters. The Bounty Hunters were formed in response to attacks that had taken place against the people in Nickerson Gardens by this rival gang. We considered it to be our responsibility to protect the Nickerson Gardens housing project. Many of us who lived there were fiercely loyal to each other, and regardless of how misplaced some may think this loyalty is, that matters to young people who live in a world where the deck is stacked. The gang task force used to arrest some of us out of Nickerson Gardens. We wouldn't be charged with anything, but we'd be taken down to the police station, kept in handcuffs, and officers would take turns punching us. Occasionally, we'd be uncuffed, giving us a chance to fight back, and we would fight back, even though there were three or four officers surrounding us. The choice was to get knocked out fighting back or get knocked out fighting back without fighting back at all. I joined the military in 1973 in the hope of putting my life back together. Well, saying, quote, back together might be misleading. My life was never together. I was 18. I enlisted in the National Guard with the intention of going into the Army. My uncle was in the Army, and at that time it was like my way out of Watts. It really opened me up to the world. It put aspects of my life in perspective for me. My parents, as well as my grandparents, aunts, and uncles, raised me to be a responsible thinking and acting person. It was just something about the street, the life that always got me. When I came home from the military, it was just a matter of time before I found my way back to Watts, the Nickerson Gardens, 109th Street Park, and in particular, the Bounty Hunters. I became a father for the first time in 1973. My second son was born in 1974. I was arrested in 1974 and incarcerated in 1975 for two counts of second-degree murder. A young lady who was very dear to me was raped. I was convicted for the murder of the person who was accused of raping her. I was also accused of shooting a person in the Nickerson Garden Projects who had threatened to bring a rival gang over to the neighborhood. I honestly had nothing to do with this shooting. There were a host of witnesses willing to testify that I was at a party on the other side of Nickerson Gardens at the time the shooting occurred. At the trial, the only witnesses who testified and connected me to the shooting were two guys. They were biological brothers who'd been arrested for the shooting themselves and agreed to testify against me for deals. My attorney, a public defender, didn't call any witnesses to testify on my behalf, even though they were in the courtroom during the trial. The jury convicted me of second-degree murder. During my second sentencing, the judge stated that the jury could have certainly found me not guilty. I was sentenced to 15 years to life. After that, I received a general discharge under honorable conditions from the military in 1975. 
My parents said my past had caught up to me. I was sent to San Quentin a month after my 21st birthday. Sent directly back to solitary. It's been said that California prisons were perhaps the most violent and brutal in the United States at that time. I certainly believe it. And San Quentin was perhaps the most violent. I remember arriving there. As I got off the bus and was being escorted to the shoe or security housing unit, it was, it was called the hole then. Someone was killed. I was convinced at that moment that San Quentin was all that I had heard it was. In 1978, while I was in San Quentin, several guys and I were engaged in a conversation about baseball. I was an avid fan at the time, particularly of the Giants. There were some officers observing the conversation from a window on the third floor. I received a chrono a few days later stating that based on the officer's observation, this was a black gorilla family conversation taking place and that I was directing the discussion. The BGF, as I understand it, is a political-slash-military organization that believes in creating a society in which the humanity of everyone is respected. And a chrono is a document that explains and identifies an action or decision that was made and why. They are documents that log information used in the, quote, validation of a prisoner. The chrono I received also stated that I was a captain in the BGF. When I filed an appeal on this and told the reviewing appeals officer that the conversation was about baseball, he laughed. I've always rejected the characterization of my being a prison gang member. I'm always mindful of the fact that it served as the basis for my being buried in solitary, along with others like me. On one occasion, I received a chrono that said I admitted to being a member of the BGF and to being a captain. I never did any such thing. There is hardly any kind of defense against an alleged admission, except to say that I didn't admit to anything. I don't know, nor have I ever been told what the alleged circumstances were, where I was, who I was talking to, or why I made this admission. A lot of information is recycled. Informants pass on information to each other, and then multiple informants will use it when they are de debriefing. It is naturally considered reliable because multiple sources have provided it, and it is in turn used to justify placing supposed gang members in solitary. I left San Quentin in 1976 and was transferred to DVI and Tracy. I was transferred back to San Quentin in 1977. After I came back to San Quentin, as far as the CDCR was concerned, I was what they considered me to be. I stayed there until 1983 and spent almost all of my time in the shoe as a validated gang member. Back then, in each shoe, there was what were called strip cells. This was a cell that was stripped of all property. Your mattress, blankets, and sheets were taken at breakfast and given back to you at 9 p.m., if not later. What you were provided really was up to the staff who worked in solitary. You weren't allowed to go outdoors to the yard if you were housed in a strip cell. You were fed on paper trays, and you showered a couple times a week. I came home on May 30, 1983, Memorial Day. I thought that I was coming home to this woman that I was absolutely crazy about, but she was raped and killed three months before I got out. I was absolutely crushed when I was told that she had been killed. It was one of the few times that I remember my legs giving out from underneath me. I don't remember the details of what happened, and I honestly didn't want to know. She was raped, stabbed, and killed by gang members. I should have left California. I was actually told by my parole officer that I should leave the state. For the first couple of weeks that I was home, I stayed with my parents in Compton. My parents helped me get a job through a friend about a week after I got there. I was working at a place called Jackson Products in Santa Fe Springs, California. My youngest son, Roberto, was born in 1985, and that same year I was arrested on a first-degree murder charge. I was charged with being one of three people who were armed with three different weapons in a shooting. My alleged co-defendants and I were all accused of firing shots into a victim's body. My alleged co-defendants and I were tried separately. 
There was no physical evidence, no guns, fingerprints, blood-stained clothing. In many ways, my trial on this case was much like my trial in 1974. I have statements from a number of potential witnesses who spoke to my former investigator and told him that I wasn't at the scene of the shooting when it occurred. None of these witnesses were called to testify on my behalf. There is a substantial amount of evidence that showed I was an innocent. After deliberating for almost four full days, the jury convicted me of first-degree murder, but they found that I didn't use a weapon in the commission of the crime. This basically means that the jury didn't believe that I actually shot the victim. In spite of this, I was sentenced to life without possible parole. I was sent directly back to solitary in the shoe at Chino. Wow, that's, that's in. powerful, powerful. Tell us again the name of the book, uh, sis. So this book is called Six by Ten, Stories from Solitary, edited by Taylor Pendergrass and Mateo Hoke. You can get this book if you haven't already at haymarketbooks.org, voiceofwitness.org, and, of course, Amazon. But I always encourage you to get from the um, other bookstores if you can. So will we be so, hearing again next week about um, ZA? Will we continue? We will. Okay. In fact, we will. We will. So join us next week. We will also have a, a wonderful guest that will be coming on. And yes, we are going to continue. It will be our third segment of the essay. So if you haven't gotten your book, get your book and follow us. Follow along with us next week while we continue with Zah's story. Thank you so much, Sister Nube. Have a beautiful, beautiful weekend. And we'll talk again Thanks. next week. Thank Yes, thank you. You too. And thank you to all the listeners. Have a great week. Blessed love. of his world to tend every little flower every bird Ooh, sometimes we ignore what he put us here for and we selfishly yes maximum respect to david banks and also our brethren we received your letter and it's from Kimya and we will talk again uh, next week Kimya